um, on the seven churches of Revelation that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. Some of you are probably going, uh, oh no. And others are probably going, oh goody. I am not going through the whole book of Revelation. We're doing the seven churches, uh, and then we're going to switch directions coming into Easter. Um, but a little bit, let me intro the book a little bit for you. Um, Revelation is a book uh, of prophecy. So it's prophecy that is, that is a divine prediction of future events, but it's also uh, a divine diagnosis of present events that, that is being written about. And so we're going to consider the state of the church then and the state of the church today as we look at these seven churches. The book of Revelation was written in the 90s AD, so right at the end of that first century. Um, for reference, Jesus dies around 30 AD, right? Um, lots of the churches are started and planted like 40, 50, 60 AD, and through there letters are written. But John, the apostle of Jesus, lives uh, longest. He wasn't executed, um, and he lives well into the 90s. And for perspective, um, Jerusalem right, the capital of Israel, the center of Judaism and the center of where Jesus did a lot of his ministry and where he was crucified and rose, falls in 70 AD. Rome conquers it and crushes it, lays waste to Jerusalem. So now you have these Christians who have grown up, are spread around throughout the world, and Jerusalem's gone. I mean, it's there, but it's laid waste, which means they're heightened and looking forward to when Jesus comes back, that new Jerusalem, paradise, heaven, right? And so, as John writes this revelation, it's, that's, he's got eyes toward that. The other thing you need to know about John is he gets exiled um, to an island called Patmos. So will you put that map up for me, Sam? Um, which is right off the coast of modern-day Turkey, or Asia Minor. You can see um, Patmos is right at the bottom left corner there, that little tiny island. And you can see it's just off the coast there. John was, uh, went to take care of Jesus' mother Mary in Ephesus until she died. During the reign of Domitian, the emperor, um, which is in the 80s and 90s, uh, John was sent to exile to live uh, on the island of Patmos where he lived out his days. And it's from there that he gets this revelation from God, from Jesus, to give to those seven churches that you saw on that map. Put that map back up one more time. And so the seven churches that you see there are all red letter. So he's in there, Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. That was a road that went right through there, right? And it's like these major seven cities, these are the letters going to these major seven cities and the churches there. The book is also an apocalypse. That means it's an unveiling, a revealing. But what is it revealing? It's unveiling and revealing the reality of a spiritual war between God and demons and people set on the stage of earth. While Christ has won the decisive victory, we know from the Gospels, dying and rising from the dead and reigning in heaven, the dragon, the serpent, the evil one, Satan, continues to uh, carry out terrorist raids um, uh, against Christians and against the church. And so John writes with that kind of language. Um, he gives warnings, warnings that include things like false teaching, uh, persecution, compromising with immorality, idolatry of materialism, spiritual complacency and laziness. But he also gives great encouragement to persevere, to overcome, to be received into the kingdom of heaven, to those who have ears to hear. And he describes the risen Christ in vivid imagery as the overcomer and victor. This first church that we're going to look at in just a minute here is the church in Ephesus. And you can go ahead and see if Google Earth will work here just to give you guys an idea of the ancient city of Ephesus. It had a 
a temple built to Artemis, one of the gods, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Um, and this may or may not work. We'll see in a second here. It might work. It'll take a second. Loading. Um, and it had a theater. And the theater in ancient Ephesus could seat 24,000 people. That's the theater right there on the hillside, that round semicircle shape with a road extending out from it downward to a harbor that used to exist that is now silted in. So it's no more a port city where you could uh, arrive to. But it was a port city. Um, very rich, very wealthy city, a couple hundred thousand people, um, uh, capital for Roman commerce. In fact, Mark Antony and Cleopatra sailed into the harbor that was once there and walked up that pathway um, to the theater there, and then they could walk what now you're looking at would be to the left up into the city, sitting in the hillside there where the houses were and everything. And so it was a, a place in which uh, Rome loved and built temples to their emperors, to their Caesars. And so as you had to walk past those temples, people were required to say Caesar is Lord. The Christians wouldn't do that. And as persecution grew, things became tough. And it's there where we enter our text today, where Jesus has a word for this church that was once a church that was a great light, a church who now has lost its first love. We're going to pick up in chapter 1 just to see this vision of Jesus and then continue to the letter to Ephesus in chapter 2. So, book of Revelation, starting in chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he had laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen those that are, are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent." Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Spirit of the living God, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word, which is true today as it was thousands of years ago. And I pray that you will use it to shape our lives and even as is promised in the book of Revelation, for those who read it, that there would be great blessing for us. So I pray that you would give us that blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.
So before I get into some of the main points here, let me clarify a couple terminology things, make sure you understand what was being said there. Um, one is it mentions stars, holding stars in his hand, and it says these are the angels. The word for angel in the Greek is messenger. It can mean divine angel like we might think of, but it can also mean somebody who's a messenger who's carrying something out. And scholars aren't exactly sure what it means here. Does it mean angels of these seven churches, or does it mean pastors? I tend to think it means pastors because the letters are going to them to be distributed to the churches. Probably not an angel delivering it miraculously in that way. Um, But in any sense, there's these messengers that are of the seven churches. And then the lampstands are the churches. So when it uses stars, it's talking about the messengers. And when it says lampstands, it's talking about the churches. And the lampstands invoke imagery of the lampstand that would have been in the temple representing the light of God. And so... The churches, representing that light, are to let their light shine in the darkness. It also represents the imagery of keeping a lamp lit while waiting for the groom to come and to take them to be wed. And that's Jesus' imagery in the New Testament that he uses. And then the the risen and reigning Christ, Jesus, says repeatedly for each church, I know you. I know you. Now, that's both good and scary. (laughs) Um, because he knows everything. He knows their works. There's nothing hidden. Each person, each pastor is known as a member of the church. God knows and sees what the churches are up to. And to each church, he gives a commendation, he gives a correction, and he gives a promise to those who conquer. And so that's what I want to look at today. The Christ's commendation, the correction, and then the promise to those who conquer. So Christ's commendation we'll see in verses 2 through 3 and verse 6, which I'm not going to read again, but one thing he says is, I praise you, I commend you for your work. I know your work. I know your toil, right? Now, that's not just work. That's exhausting work. That's work that is both physical and mental that goes on and, and takes a toll on you. That, that work of resisting evil. And he says even specifically that work of knowing false teachers and not listening to false teachers, right? So that means they had good doctrine. They knew their theology. I remember the book of, of Ephesians is written to these people. Like Paul wrote, like they knew it. They knew theology. That's an important thing to do. I'm encouraged um, because in this church, I think we take that seriously and evidenced by a number of years ago, probably none of you would remember this. Um, many of you probably weren't even here, but there was a, a, an older woman that came to our church and she came for maybe a month or so. But when she came, the first Sunday she came, she approached me and she said, I've been given a message by God for your church. I was like, okay, I think I ought to hear that. What is it? And so we talked, and, and um, she ended up being a medium of sorts, and, and she had this message, and she had a book that she wanted to share and thought that it was very vital that we all knew this information. And so an elder and I met with her and talked to her, uh, and we did what the Bible says to do, test the spirits, um, as the Scripture says. And what we determined was that what she was presenting and wanted to present was clearly not the gospel and would clearly undermine the gospel. And so we told her, you are welcome to come to church here and listen and try to weigh out our teachings, but you are not permitted to spread your teaching here. Um, And she came for a couple weeks and then didn't come back. Um, And we didn't do that to be mean. We just wanted to be clear that what, what we send out to you guys and say, hey, here's a teaching matters because it's gotta be in line with what the gospel is and what the scripture says. Um, and, um, 
and that's, that's an important part of our job. Uh, my job's multifaceted, but central to that is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus and no other. Elders are charged as your shepherds to watch over the sheep and to protect from wolves. Pastor Brian approves and trains others on curriculum and study materials for that reason. Right? Um, so, that's an important thing that we do. And that's what, one of the things that this church was good at. And I think we've tried to do that well, too. Also, it says that this church, Ephesus, the Ephesian church there, was persevering. Twice it mentions their patient endurance. It talks about them bearing up under the weight of things and standing strong and not growing weary. They endured and they did it uh, with great perseverance. You, this church, you guys have persevered through many things. I mean, if I think back just on the life of the church, we've persevered through meeting in schools the dirty diaper scandals in classrooms that some of you are like, well, I need to know about that. I don't have time to tell you about it right now. Um, That was back in elementary school. Um, Grieving over those who have walked away from the faith and left their families. Grieving with families who have lost loved ones and supporting them in that moment, in the months and years to come. Persevering, not giving in to the immorality of the culture and repenting than when we have. That's persevering. You've been persevering because you've encouraged your pastors and your staff to keep going. And so thank you for your perseverance. That's important. This church in Ephesus was praised for it. And I want you to know that you guys do that well. You persevere. So thank you for persevering. There was all that thing a couple of years ago. It starts with a C, ends with 19, has Ovid in the middle. We persevered through that, right? So let's not quit. Let's keep going together. He also mentions that he hates the practice of the Nicolaitans. I'm not going to talk about this much because nobody knows what it means. We don't really know who the Nicolaitans were and what that was. People guess it was clearly immoral and evil. It's mentioned in another church too. And so it was something that had infiltrated the churches and was an evil acts. But one of the things I do want you to notice about that is he says, you hate the acts of the Nicolaitans. They hate the evil, but he doesn't say you hate the Nicolaitans, right? In other words, part of what he's saying there is your call is to love people and to love all people, even if they're not followers of Jesus. But that doesn't mean approving of all the things that they do. You can love a person and disagree with something that is evil at the same time. And so he praises them for that. So while hating sin, we must show love to sinners and show them Jesus who welcomes sinners, which leads to Christ's correction. And this I want to spend a little bit more time on. It's in verse 4. Could you put that on the screen for me? Um, The correction here is, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now we have to ask questions like, what does that mean? Um, This church this Ephesian church, had really good doctrine. We know that because they were able to discern false teachers and say, no, that's wrong, we're not doing that. We're standing for what is true. Okay, so they did that well. Um, so what's the love that they had at first? Was it love for Jesus? Did they, did they lose their love for Jesus? It doesn't seem to be describing that because they're praised for enduring with perseverance and standing up um, and not denying Jesus. So it doesn't seem like they lack love for Jesus per se, Could it be that they lack love for one another? Probably some of that. Probably. Scholars think probably some of that. Let's look at 1 John 4, 20 to 21. This was earlier in the service too. Notice this. Whoever claims to love God, 
yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. So it's possible they're saying we love Jesus, but, but we're not loving people well, and Jesus is calling them out on that. And he's saying, look, those two go hand in hand. But it's not only that. It can also be that maybe they have a lack of love for making new followers of Jesus. And some scholars think this is precisely what it is. Notice uh, the words in Acts 19. Let's put that verse on the screen. This is in Ephesus. When Paul is in Ephesus and there's a riot, he gets taken into that big theater I showed you. The theater fills with people, so 20-some thousand people wanting him dead, and he gets out of there. You can read that story in in Acts uh, 19. But this is what it says. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread wildly, widely and grew in power. So one of the things that the Ephesian Christians were first known for is telling the gospel to people and seeing God work in mighty ways and people become believers in Christ. Now here's the thing. Did they lack love for Jesus? Did they lack love for one another? Did they lack love for people who didn't know Jesus yet? Yes. Because all three go together. That's what John was saying. If you love Jesus, then you've got to love your brother. If you're not loving your brother, you're not really loving Jesus well. If you're not about doing Jesus' mission, then you're not really loving Jesus well either. All three of those go hand in hand. Yet hear the words of this of, uh, one theologian, Simon Kistemacher. He writes this. The lush green color of springtime in the congregation in Ephesus has disappeared. And the fading shades that characterize an early autumn are now prevalent. The church Jesus addressed no longer consisted of first-generation believers, but of second- and third-generation Christians. These people lacked the enthusiasm their parents and grandparents had demonstrated. They functioned not as propagators of the faith, but as caretakers and custodians. There was an obvious deficiency in evangelistic outreach as a result of the status quo mode of thought. Right? It's the 90s AD when this is being written. Second, third generation Christians. They're not doing what the church first did that their grandparents started. Have you settled into an attitude of being a caretaker rather than a propagator? The solution Jesus gives them is found in verse 5. You can put that on the screen too. He tells them three things. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent. And then... Go return and do the things you used to do at first. And if you don't repent, then you're in danger. So basically, remember what what you did. Remember what your grandparents did. Remember the truth that was there, right? Repent means to turn around and stop doing what you're doing and change course. And to return to do the things you first did is to get back to loving one another well and sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. Otherwise, he says, he will come and remove their lampstand. Our church, I think, loves people well. I mean, I think it does. I've seen that. doesn't mean that maybe you have always felt that love. Maybe there's times where it's been hard and you haven't felt it. I want us to continue loving people well, but it doesn't just happen automatically. It happens intentionally. It means that each of you needs to be a friend to others, to look around and see people and, and greet them and say hello 
Invite them into your community group. Care for them when they're sick or ill. Um, or when they just need a friend to talk to, go get coffee with them. And we need to return to sharing the gospel with unbelieving friends. We, in a time when culture is shifting and changing, we don't insulate and retreat. We infiltrate with the love of Jesus. We keep going into the culture and taking the love of Jesus to them. Because a church that does not spread the light of Christ is in danger of being removed as a lampstand. Notice that, right? He's saying, you've lost your first love. You're not being a light, so why do you deserve to be a lampstand? You're not light-bearing. This is what happens to denominations and to churches that deny the authority of God's word, that deny Jesus as Savior, received by grace alone, through faith alone, that stop spreading the message to their neighbors. In a couple generations, they walk away from Christ, they become immoral and ungodly while appearing to be religious. It's what happened to Israel at times in the Old Testament. It doesn't happen in a day. It happens through generations. But it's what's happening to some churches today. And I pray, oh Lord, do not let us be one of them. This is why we have committed to planting new churches and not just being a church for ourselves. It's why we're happy and excited about Amelia and Marty Cates coming on. He starts full-time in April right after Easter, but he's already working with the group and they're working and planning towards uh, launching services. Um, and that's what we want to do. But it's also not just about saying, okay, good, you, you few, you, you people in Amelia, you go do that. No, no, no. It's about planting churches here, uh, growing where we are right here, meaning we got to grow where we've been planted. And this is an important thing because Jesus gave his followers a mission. In Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, he said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, be about my mission. I will be with you, and your lampstand will stay. Will you put that, that diagram on screen? This is a, a graphic that I've shown some of our leaders and stuff. Hopefully you can see this and our ministry team leaders have seen it. And um, This diagram is, is me trying to summarize what Matthew, that verse I just quoted to you, says. It says there's one goal, and that is to make growing followers of Jesus who influences others. That's our mission, make growing followers of Jesus who influence others with the gospel. Right in the middle of that is make disciples. Why? Because that verse... There is one command, the verse I quoted to you, Matthew 28, is there's one command in it, make disciples. And then there's three phrases that describe that command of making disciples. As you're going, as you're baptizing, and as you're teaching. And so our one goal is to make growing followers of Jesus who will influence others. And there's three actions in three different environments in which we try to help you guys do that. You go out into society to serve and share your faith as you're going. Be a light. Love unbelievers well. But you also gather on Sunday mornings for hospitable worship. And you might say, well, I don't see where it says that. But notice what it's saying is, go, make disciples, and when you do that, baptize them into your church. Which is to say, come on in, gather in, let's do the sacraments and let's worship together because our God is good. So we love God and we gather on Sundays for hospitable worship where we welcome people because God welcomes people. And we grow we grow in small groups of authentic community. Why? Because we have to love one another. And it's not only about loving one another, it's about understanding the faith and putting it into practice. I want you to notice that that verse says to teach them 
to obey. Sometimes when we think of teaching, we think of that as gathering new information. But no coach will let you do that. If you have a coach who's teaching you, whether it's offensive line or baseball about how to hit, will not give you information and not require you to put that into practice. The information always has to be put into practice to be learned. And so when he says teach to obey, what he is saying is this is not merely information, but transformation of one's life. You've got to put into practice what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Give ears to hear that. So he says, he who has ears, let him hear. That this is what it means to be a church. It's what we want to be about. It's what we want you guys to be about with us. Because with that comes a great promise. We have Christ's promise to the conquerors. And it's that they will eat from the tree of life in heaven. That's what's said in in verse 7 at the end, that they will eat from the tree of life. That goes all the way back to Genesis, to the garden, the tree of life, right? Comes back in Revelation and says, okay, paradise was started. It got thrown into chaos, but Jesus will restore it. And the conquerors are those who persevere. Conquer, it's a, it's a present tense thing. It's ongoing action. It means the one who's overcoming and persevering and just keeps on going. Even through the struggles of life. And you may say, wait a second. So the only way you get to paradise is if you're a conqueror, if you overcome, if you persevere. And you might say, what I thought you said though that Jesus offered forgiveness for all. We talked about that earlier. We sang of that. What can separate us from the love of God? Nothing, right? I thought that's what we said. It's by grace you've been saved, right? Yes, that is all true. It is what the Bible says. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by your works. Your good actions, your good works for the Lord, serving in a ministry, helping others, sharing your faith is not the cause It is not the basis of your acceptance in heaven. The only basis for acceptance in heaven is, I know Jesus. And what he did has me covered. But saving faith will always manifest itself with perseverance of those who follow Jesus and obey his mission. In other words, if you are rooted in grace, you will produce fruit. So, those who persevere is evidence that they know and are received by God in heaven and that nothing can separate them from the love of God because that's the basis they have. And so you do need to persevere. Hear me on this, persevere. But perseverance is not perfection and your failures are not final because Christ does forgive again and again and again and calls us back. The key in persevering is the repenting, what he calls for, turn back to me, come back, come home, You've lost your way. Get back on the path. That's persevering. It's not perfection. Saying, okay, I'm turning again to follow Jesus. He's caught my attention, my heart again. Because he's the one who is strong. These are the words of encouragement to that church. It's words of, I want us to be words of encouragement to this church too, to our church. Our church is young. We're not even as old as the Ephesus church when this is written. In March, we'll celebrate our 17th birthday almost an adult. I'm thankful that this text tells me that Jesus holds me, holds Brian, holds pastors in his hand. I'm thankful that this text tells us that Jesus walks among the lampstand. 
that he's with us by his spirit, present with us, that he has not left us, that he keeps reminding us to not lose our first love, to be about his mission. I once took a bunch of high school students, like 20 years ago, caving. Went caving uh, near Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it was a great cave, great exploration, really dirty, um, super muddy. When we crawled back in there and we had our helmets on and headlamps and everything, and we got to uh, a room that opened up a pretty big size uh, room in the cave. And um, there was maybe 15 or so of us, and we were all sitting around in a circle. Um, and so the gu- the, our guide, who was with us, the expert, um, told us that, hey, I want you guys to experience total darkness. We're like, okay. So we all turned off our headlamps, and you sit as that light dissipates and darkness comes. It doesn't take long. I don't remember exactly, 30 seconds, maybe a minute, to feel your eyes hurt. I mean, physically hurting. They are straining, I think muscularly, we'd have to ask the eye doctors in the house, but straining muscularly to let any light in that they can. But there is no light to let in. Like, it's not just dark like you're in a house and you trip over something like dark. No, you cannot see, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You can see nothing. And so then I did an experiment. We sat in silence too. It was really spooky. Nobody talked. And you start to wonder, did everybody leave me? Am I left here alone? I said, okay, everybody, I'm going to turn on one light, the light from my watch face. And I had my watch face light up. And it was enough in that darkness so that I could see the glow on every person's face in the room. Because you know what? Light penetrates darkness. It's observable. You can see it. The lampstand. We're a lampstand. means we need to be a light. Let your light shine. Maybe every time your watch lights up or your phone screen lights up, let it be a reminder that you're to be a light in the dark. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that you will help us to love you well, to love our neighbor well, and to be about your mission, loving others well, everybody well, and that we will be a light, a true lampstand in the darkness. Would you bless us in that way as a church, that we would see people come to understand, come to believe, come to know and follow you. Help us to love one another well. Show us the way, Lord, and preserve us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.